Let's go ahead and move into our teaching today. Turn into 1 Kings. We'll pick it up where we left off. I'm trying to think of something to say, but I can't. Whoops, that's the word I was looking for. And so here's where we're going to pick it up from the last study. We're going to focus on verse 11, but the title of this for today is You Should Have Known Jeroboam. If the comma is there, which I think is inserted, it is an exhortation to him. If you remove the context of the comma, then it becomes what we would direct towards Solomon. You should have known Jeroboam. And so this is chapter um, 10. could be 11. It is 11. And we're at verse 11 right now. We actually went past verse 11. I'm going to highlight it for you. Then we'll go ahead and talk about it. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son and for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. The previous week we had talked about Solomon basically just going solo. He just decided to do things his own way, and he left the way of God. He had compromised with both uh, his spiritual duties and overseeing as a very spiritual and a very wise man the affairs of the kingdom. He had found himself in multiple affairs, meaning wives that he added to himself, concubines that he had. These things are always predicaments in culture when that becomes, again, the pursuit of men's hearts. And we know that what ultimately led was idol worship of pagan deities, those who had worshipped false gods and had ultimately found themselves caught up into the things that Solomon permitted. They were the sinister gods of the foreign kings, and they directly were linked to the women that Solomon had loved. That was the idea, is that he would not let go of them and he would not cling to God. And says in scriptures that God was angry with him. It's important to note that in essence, what Solomon allowed himself to do and to basically endorse in allowing his wives to have high places of worship in which others would go in that direction, that he did have opportunity to turn back to the Lord. He had an opportunity to experience the grace of God and the mercy of God. 
but it doesn't say that he ever did. What we do know is that the latter time, somewhere between this word being given and the end of his reign, he became, if you would, a spiritual philosopher in terms of the things that he was able to reveal to the next generation, which we look at as far as both Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs in which there is the flow of wisdom and the flow of reflective correction, what he found to be unsatisfactory to himself in the vanity of pursuing the things of the world. That we do know, that he gave it his best shot, though he had lost his greatest opportunity in what the Lord had prepared for him. What we see in this is the casualty. Jeroboam becomes the prominent name right now because he will actually be the person that the Lord allows to take over in the stead of Solomon's influence, but to be involved in an altogether new work. And that was when the division of Israel as a united nation would be in what we would call the northern and southern kingdoms. He would be the recipient of 10 of the tribes. Judah and very likely Benjamin were left to be those who would predominantly hold Jerusalem as an honor that God says would be bestowed to David and for the sake of the city that he loves. And so that's basically a consequence. This would be the mark of one man's folly for all the generations to come. And what we know historically were the kingdoms of those days, the, the reign of kings, some 43, that together and mutually would be divided among themselves. We're going to pick it up here because this is important to take simply note of what is happening and what the Bible tells us is a result of that. In verse 14, through its conclusion of at least this theme, adversity is going to be permitted to have its effect on Solomon and on all of the kingdom. Where there was prosperity, now comes adversity. So we can see it in our nation as well. We have no doubt a very prosperous nation. God has blessed us because the origin of our nation was, regardless of how it is trying to be rewritten historically in the school books that we give our kids, it was a nation that really sought after the opportunity to worship God, unhindered by government, undefiled by politics. And so we look at the, the basic scheme of things now, and we see, man, this seems like a lot of what at one time spiritual people fled from and wanted a change in. And so we see that with the things that are being proposed as truth, my truth, their truth, some truth, 
mostly lies, fabrications, distortions, things that are not anchored in the word and ultimately problematic to people who want spiritual revelation. And not just any, they want God's light in their life that is dark. And we know that there is an adversary that's both applauding this and is also the author of it. It's not God. But we also know it's when there is decisions that are made that are intentionally, willfully, in the conduct of rebellion against God. And when it's left unchecked, then it takes over that which is to be a foothold of righteousness and to be for God a statement that he's the one that leads with all authority in sovereignty over the governance of people. He established government to bring civil rest and unity. He established the church to be not only a complement to the things that people must have, and that is a link to God, the ability to commune with him, to have sin forgiven, to have giftings imparted, and to live a vibrant and vital life for the Lord that affects the defectiveness of culture. The 60s generation became a defective culture that ultimately became touched by the Lord and then effective for God. Where did it all go to? Well, everybody got old. That's what happened. And the next generation was neglected, not trained. Jeroboam might be considered that next generation, not trained, not schooled. Watched a guy that was renowned for having an unprecedented anointing of wisdom unlike any man who had ever lived and had the evidence of the things that God blessed him with as king as a favored son. But it would seem that Jeroboam wasn't schooled properly in the things of God. It's a different take to be able to watch a man that has indeed an anointing and undeniably the favor of God. But if it doesn't translate into ultimately what the next generation is to become, then it basically is going to lead to rebellion. Was Jeroboam affected by the compromises in Solomon's life? We probably would say affected and infected. His name is interesting because it means one who strives with men, or in similitude, one who strives and oppresses men. That's what Jeroboam's name means. Well, he's coming up. But right now what we see is this adversarial enemy that's being raised up. Do you realize that we have adversarial enemies that feign friendships, but that are targeting us as a people, as a nation? And I still believe in the merits of God having ordinances over this country. And I still do believe that in our responsibility as believers first, patriots second, we have an opportunity to pray 
that things change and they change for the purposes of God receiving glory. But I also know this, the end times do not reflect necessarily the behavior of men getting better, but actually more heinous. One of the things we know is that things can't get better until ultimately the soul of men is changed. And so it's this tug of war. Well, what do we do? Do we pray that God's kingdom right now is what we force? Do we have a dominion theology mindset that says the church has got to do it? Nope, the church is to pray, and then our job is to be receptive to those who respond, who come in these doors, and all of a sudden there's light in their life. There's truth that their ears have not heard. There is the re-stimulating of all of those neurons that at one time received and filtered through and stored spiritual data in their mind to know that God is speaking to them once again. Picking this up, now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon Hadad, the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. So the Edomites were enemies of Israel. They had been kept at bay by God intentionally. So it's really important to note that God does keep the enemies of his people at bay. Israel's survival is the result of God keeping their enemies at bay. Oh, they use weapons, but those weapons are worthless if God is not guiding and directing them. They have an amazing defense force, renowned for what they do, which is simply seemingly the impossible to win anything with the odds against them in most all combat situations. What's necessary to note is that as we left, realizing that for David's sake and for the sake of Jerusalem, God's favor would be on that place, meaning that he's not allowing it to be taken over, even though Israel is highly cultural. They don't have, as a nation, the spiritual regard for God who gave his son to them, presented himself in Jesus, and all they needed to do was to read the scriptures and to recognize their time of visitation had come. So the Lord imported a new work by the Spirit of God, the church was birthed. Satan has been at work since that time in Acts chapters 1 and 2 to thwart and to affect our decision to not look back but to look forward and to look forward to the cross in terms of what it takes to live a life for the Lord. Adversaries from the outside are being raised up to come against Israel right now. So the altogether prosperity that they once knew is now not so true. As we can see, prosperity in our time have flux and what we would call depression. And the other term that we know we're in is inflation. Everything is just askew. 
and in part it happens because of philosophies in politics that I do believe are not necessarily prayed through and about by those who have been elected and appointed. When those elections and those appointments happen and it is godless people or even those who feign to have a relationship with God, the consequence is felt by the people. Jeroboam soon to be coming would be noted by his name as one who strives and oppresses the people. You may say, wait a minute, he wasn't voted in. God allowed him to be an instrument of correction to the people of Israel. And because Solomon had angered him, God allows people, even in their appointments, whether they're elected or assigned, to be instruments of correction. Do you think that maybe our country is experiencing a time of correction? Praise God that the church is in prayer and we are seeing little by little a reclamation of careless adjudication. Roe versus Wade needed to be turned completely on its end, period. And I believe that the babies in those wombs had been praying for this. I believe they pray too. If John would be able to leap in the womb for joy when Mary met Elizabeth, do you think it's any less difficult or more difficult for a baby to be found in prayer if they can leap for joy? Do you think that a baby could be found in prayer in the mother's womb? something to consider. This text of scripture moves by telling us another adversary is on the scene. But it is important probably to have a little bit of understanding on Hadad, who now is being raised up as an oppressor. It means a loud noise. One of the reasons that the Lord compels us to come away and to be quiet before him is because of the loud noises that we hear of culture. When we have people that embrace nights of rage, we have to say something's going on to say that that's even acceptable. The Lord knows that that's what people can do. Their temperaments can lead them. Rather than being still and knowing that he is God, they will be loud and show their resentment against God. Hey, Dad might be a contemporary version of what we see all of a sudden was on Solomon's watch. There's another one that's raised up. It's found towards the closing in verse 25, and that's Rezon. It's interesting because his name actually means prince-like or noble. Have you ever seen prince-like people or those who present themselves as nobility and yet they're adversarial? Have you ever seen that mix? You have in culture division of those who simply are and do in fact look as though they are troublemakers and they are causing trouble 
And you have the other ones who seem oh so diplomatic, so reasonable, so noble, and yet their intentions and the power that they have is just as adversarial as those who destroy. And we found that to be, well, you know what? That's, it's okay. Give them room. Let them express themselves. Let them legislate. Could be good for us. Well, not if it's contrary to the word. The Lord's making allowance right now, and it's strictly as a result of the consequence of sin that Solomon has, in fact, authored by not dealing with himself and ultimately letting the entire kingdom fall apart on his watch. Moving, though, now into verse 28 with one footnote. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. This is in reference to the two men mentioned right now. It's important to take note of that it's not going to get better, it gets worse. Because the guy that gets the majority of the kingdom is no better than those who from the outside are adversaries. It's the way that First and Second Corinthians paints it that there are attacks from the outside that lead to ultimately attacks on the inside. It's why the church is one of the best places you can ever be, but it's the one that you scratch your head going, what is going on here? Can't we get along? Aren't we to get along? Aren't we family? And very often it's because when we cross the door, that is precisely what we are to say. Lord, that I might be one in the spirit, one body, because there's one God. And I come in here with baggage, I leave it at the door. And what I want is a filling of this cistern. And I want to be overflowing. I want to be a refreshment. So here we go with Jeroboam. You should have known Jeroboam, Solomon. You should have known, Jeroboam, what was known in your heart. Nevertheless, you're going to be the one now that will start a dynasty of almost 90% failed kings over Israel. Interesting, the smaller grouping left in honor of David and for the sake of Jerusalem has the highest percentage of fruitful kings. Do you know how high it is? Out of the some 43 split between the two nations, there's only eight kings that are going to be given meritus commendation. Eight. After all of them said and done, most miserable are the failures and appointments of kings. So it does say that God can do great things with just a few that say, he's my God, and what he says to do, we're going to do it. And it does say, as much as we may have our faves, if they don't line up with scriptures, they're not God's favorite, but they may be God's allowance. And that should scare us into saying, Lord, I messed up. 
You get what you don't ask for. Huh? Well, it's popular to say we get what you ask for. You get what you don't ask for. And when you get it, it comes really hard against what you thought and what may have been God's moment to have attended with his ear to say, good, I'm glad you chose that one instead of that one. I'm glad you were specific in your requests that there be raised up men and women. Solomon's servant, verse 28, Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite from Zereda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. This tells you now what was in his heart to do. An allowance certainly by God, but by name and ultimately by this verse, he was a rebel. And he was a rebel whose intention was to put between himself and Solomon a division. Allowed, yes, but it's going to cause striving among all the people. And by the way, he will be the first to fail as the next king over what is the remnant of Solomon's kingdom. This is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. What's wrong with a little infrastructure, infrastructure, intra and infra? What's wrong with repairing the things that are broken? Do you realize that's what the church is intending to do in the culture war? We're intending to repair what has been broken by men of rebellion and of pride. Do you think that it's appreciated? No. What does it foster? Rebellion. You guys are stifled by antiquitous writings. You are saying what we can't do and what we need to do and we're tired of you. And the church at times scratches its chin and rubs its head. And we go, well, well, maybe we are just being a little bit too demanding. Maybe we're not being as thoughtful in considering that other person's perspective on life. I remember first hearing this in college, and I've used this before in teachings, that in a class I sat in on, there was a British philosophy that was beginning to take over in the classroom. And that was allow children to explore their options and become what they want to become. So it's basically, welcome kids, come and enjoy the classroom experience. Over there is this, over there is that. Some of you may want to be involved there. Enjoy your day. I believe that the place was a place called Somerset. And I had a professor that was endorsing all of that. No disciplining of the kids, just let them be. If they want to bop somebody in the head, that's okay. They're learning how to express anger productively. Seriously. Let them be. 
what they want to be. And what has that led today? It's led to what? Gender dysphoria? Well, that's a psychological term that has no bearing on the word of God, which says, in the beginning, God created man and woman. In the image of him, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We have to have confusion over this. We now have individuals who in early age succumbed to the vanity of that thought and are regretting it. They're repenting of it. They are proclaiming, do not go that way. Because that's what the enemy wants as well, for us to go the way contrary to the word and to believe it. We've got a lot of that going on. You may say, how did you get that out of this text? Just because rebellion is being cited as a part of his nature. And rebellion always has, as one of its first motivations, pride. And what follows pride is arrogance, putting feet and mouth to the cause of your rebellion. And so the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of war. He was impressive, and that's fine. I've seen impressive guys, but here's what I know. What's more impressive is when in their might, they also have that endowment of humility and have sought the Lord in their might, in their strength, in their vitality. I've kept an eye on Luke for a long season, and I remember him both in school as a young 10, 11, 12-year-old advancing up, and I saw him pursue with all abandon the heart of God. And though I do appreciate the history and indeed had fun in terms of being able to celebrate our life's journey together, I know that all of what it is we're involved in is, Lord, how can you be glorified in my life and what I'm doing now and where I want to be the best fit for you? I'm fit and I want to be the best fit for you. But Jeroboam has to simply his carnal credit. He's a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. What Solomon, who in his wisdom, equally could have been able to assess was, how's this guy doing in his strength? What? He resents the building up of the Milo? Those were, if you would, perhaps what we would have been known, the securing of the fortification or of the hillside in the city of David, building it up. It went into deterioration. It was not kept up. Solomon put a priority on establishing, reestablishing that area which was sentimental with regard to where he grew up, where David was at. He goes back into rebuilding it. Boy, do we need some rebuilding in our country. We really do. And this mighty man, though, it says, was harboring a resentment that that was then. Why? Did he become a globalist? Forget that. Work on this. Work on outreach a little bit more. Let's see if we can, rather than stay off the enemy, let's see if we can make friends with the enemy. We don't know. 
But Solomon, with all that he was endured, seemed to have had short-circuited in knowing the heart of Rehoboam or Jeroboam, who in another respect will meet Solomon's son, nose to nose. Of valor, Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. And now it happened at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shalomite, met him on the way, verse 29, and had clothed himself with a new garment. And the two were alone in the field. So there's a prophetic meeting that's happening right now. And then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. This is an allowance by God. It's an allowance because of what Solomon had not done, which was stay true to God. So even though allowances God makes, God is always ready to hear confession. Lord, this has happened because of what it is we allowed. Therefore, Lord, we repent. Would you not allow the consequence of this to endure? Would you turn, Lord, with compassion towards us? God has proven himself to be merciful, gracious, compassionate, the Lord introduced himself at a time in which Moses himself, who had experienced the presence of God at the burning bush, and later on said, I have a desire, Lord, to see you. The Lord would say, you can't see me. No man can see me and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll place you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass before you and you'll only see my back. But in even seeing the back of God, he glowed because of the presence of God. Even Moses had a curiosity with regard to this God. He followed in faith to see something of him. And in the same context, we know that the cleft of the rock is the provision pictorially of what Jesus is to us. We know the Father because we know the Son. And because we've seen the Son, the Father sees us as his Son. And he's attentive to us. He's restorative for us. He's genuine to the things which make our humanity very complex, almost at times completely contradictory to the way that we want to be and we desire at our best to be representing God. So this garment is torn in 12 pieces. Figuratively, he is giving to Jeroboam the 10 pieces, this is going to be what you receive in this allowance from God. And then verse 32, but he shall have one tribe, a reiteration. He shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me. Notice this, this is the reason, and worshiped Ashtoreth. Goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Amnon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes 
and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. Baby sacrifices, destroyers of civility and structure, immorality, these were the gods that ultimately were being worshipped, pagan deity, because of what Solomon had permitted, the allowance of God for Jeroboam. Oh, if you'd only known, Solomon, the consequence of what you were doing, but ultimately, the person who now will be an adversary to you. What perhaps he was harboring in his heart all along, that God would choose a rebel, and now a rebel with a cause. However, verse 34, I will not take the whole kingdom, a reiteration, out of his hands, because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes, salutations, commendations for David, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. Meaning this is what you can expect, but it's not going to happen as long as Solomon lives. And when he passes the implication, then whom he has in his stead, Rehoboam, you will take at that time your position. Notice this. To his son I will give the one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself and to put my name there. This is essentially, don't touch that part of real estate. You're being, right now, given an allowance. It's for a purpose of correcting Israel on behalf of Solomon's sin. But that is for David, and that is for my eye, Jerusalem. Don't even think about working that into your stratagem essentially, Mr. Rebel. I'm always reminded, if I go to Dutch Brothers and I drink a Rebel, oh Lord, forgive me, and yet thank you for my Rebel. <laughs> Acknowledging what I am is sweet when I've confessed it. I get both, a reminder of who I am, who all of us can be, but it's sweet when it's taken care of. That's my quick analogy for you. Brett, thank you for your provision. And so now he says to Jeroboam, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires. We've heard that before, haven't we? That's a great responsibility when the Lord gives you your heart desires. It's something that we go, oh, yippee, and it should be something, oh, Lord, may you have your way with me, not my way. May my desires be actually your desires. But this is the way God shows both generosity and also instills in us the fear of God. If you got everything that you wanted, would you be able to handle the outcome of what ultimately you may deserve in mishandling it. It shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you 
and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will, notice this, afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And notice this, verse 40, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Verse 41, now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Conclusion, verse 43, to Solomon's life. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in place. And the legacy of Solomon with regard to sin will advance on in the calamity that both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom suffer grievously from. Well, I'm sure not going to be like that, but the scriptures tell us that we are just like that. We certainly can be just like Solomon. We certainly can be just like Jeroboam. I'm only going to address this from one specific verse. Chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, that is what is the establishment of our faith by the work that's been done by God and the continual work that's being done by the Spirit of God within us. And what it always amounts to is how much of God do you want as opposed to how much the world offers you out there? How much? And what if God says, I'm so delighted that you want me more than that, that I'm going to fill you and refresh you and wash you, and I'm going to make you an enduring work in the time that you have. And when you go out those doors, you have access to me, and the desires of your heart will be met because your desires align with my desire. Jeroboam, if you had only known your heart, and you can rejoice that God is showing you grace, but with grace, there's also great responsibility. When sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Do we therefore continue on in sin? May it never be. And so Paul addresses that. May it never be. And therefore, as a church, we don't have to condone what the world's saying yes to. We can pray about it, and we can make our voices known without any shame. And we should. And maybe it's going to take 40, 50 years, as it did in this case, for babies' rights. There are others that do not deserve the rights that they're asking for because it's contrary to the Word of God. If the world only knew the beauty and the strength that God provides in the unique design of men and women, they would never say, let's re-engineer things, let's make things just a little bit different. 
because it doesn't work. It's a pitiful work when man tries to be a designer of what God says. My mark's on that. That's my artwork. Don't touch it. That's my city. Don't touch it. Those are my men. Those are my women. Don't touch them. So we're going to put this study right now just again at its closure. We're going to have the worship band come up, and then Spencer will give simply the benediction. Time to close this out. I will say for you, though, that at Galesville, a woman, young gal, decided to take an invitation to be baptized, and so we baptized her in the lake. And within the next two or four minutes, a young little eight-year-old named Thaddeus came forward and was baptized because it was their time to go on public record. And I present that to you saying, lives are being changed. Thaddeus has a story as to why the Lord touched his heart at age eight. Miranda has a story as to why the Lord touched her. And now the beginning of her adult pilgrimage, that's awesome.